What's up, guys? Before the show, we wanted to tell you about our new bingo endeavor, B-I-N-G-O. So what we have now on our website is a bingo sheet, five by five, with multiple prompts across various episodes. So it could be uh, Bobby's haircut is referenced, or um, Bo doesn't like his drink, or whatever prompt it may be. Uh, you basically download the bingo sheet or print it out, fill it out accordingly when you come across something in an episode. So when you came across uh, Bobby and myself talking about his haircut, uh, you would mark it down. You'd say it's episode four or the endocrine lecture or wherever it may be. Fill out all the boxes, post it on Instagram, tag us, or just send it to us through Instagram, and we'll send you a piece of merchandise from our store totally free, shipping and everything. So kind of a little fun game to get y'all engaged, to have you look for key parts within the podcast, and then to potentially just uh, get some free merch. We got posters, among other things, in our store, so check it out. Welcome back, Gunners, to another episode of the Buzzwords Podcast. This is part two, a continuation of uh, acid-based fluid electrolytes, you know, all that good stuff. All that good stuff. Awesome, and I'm drinking the St. Archer Tropical IPA. And Bobby, remind us what you're drinking. I am drinking the Creep Show Smoked Porter. Very nice. Very smoky, I'm sure. It's very porterish as well. <laughs> it's very heavy. It's like I'm carrying something. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I'm carrying rocks to the top of a hotel in Bikini Bottom. Well, we're starting buzzed for sure on this second part of our Buzzwords podcast. The Battle of Wits has begun. It ends when you decide and we both drink. It'll bring us two absolute martinis. You know how I like them straight up. Why is the rum always gone? It's sort of an oaky afterbirth. Detain a flyer for enjoying his whiskey. What was that? Now that's high yield. Cheers. <sighs> Buzzwords. So you have a uh, skinny 19-year-old and they come in and they're kind of altered and a little bit somnolent um and they had sounds like they had a bunch of vomiting and they seem pretty dehydrated you know their mucous membranes are dry type of thing uh slow cap refill and uh you recently had a covid you know you had covid recently so you don't really have a sense of smell but your astute med student notices that they have a fruity breath what's going on so fruity breath makes me think of ketones makes me think of dka yeah Oh, exactly. Okay. You did it. I was gonna say, uh, <laughs> I was gonna say, like, if you're telling me more almondly, almondy, then I would uh, start thinking about cyanide. <laughs> they smell like <laughs> I didn't know onions. Which way you're going? <laughs> <laughs> they have arsenic poisoning. No, yeah. So uh, it's just DKA. It's actually surprisingly common for type one diabetics to find out that they're a type one diabetic by going into DKA and ending up in the hospital. So. Um, it's just something to keep an eye out for. They'll they'll have higher glucoses, like they tend to be in the four hundreds. They'll be acidotic, obviously, hence the name. And they will actually look hyperkalemic on lab work, but their total body potassium will be low. And that's just because the insulin uh has an effect on the beta two receptor, I believe, in uh causing potassium to go back into cells which is why you use it sometimes if somebody's hyperkalemic you'll give like albuterol or you can give insulin so how do you treat dka yeah so dka uh, is a lot of fluids as well because the person is incredibly dehydrated i mean if you just think about the path of fizz 
someone has not just come to you with one day of symptoms, they've probably come in after uh, days, if not weeks of symptoms, where they're urinating all their water out because it's following the glucose. Um, their body has no insulin, so uh, they've been accumulating all this potassium in their blood, for example, without it having it shift into the cells. Um, and then, so you just have to basically target each one of these pathophys issues. So uh, low fluids, you give them fluids. Uh, low insulin, you give them insulin. Uh, the caveat with that is you have to check their potassium, make sure it's uh, above a certain number. Most people say 3.3 and uh, replete potassium as appropriate because once you start giving that insulin, that potassium will start dropping uh, because it will start shifting the potassium into those cells. Um, and then you go and you go and you go and you give them insulin uh, until their gap closes, not until their sugar improves, but until their gap closes. Um, sometimes people's glucose uh, correct uh, quite quickly and they're now in the uh, low 100s uh, and you still need to give them insulin because their gap hasn't closed. They still have ketones. Uh, so what you need to start doing actually at that point, I think it's when glucose falls under 200. And of course, this is more important for your wards than your boards. Uh, but you need to start giving them actually some sugar, which is counterintuitive uh, because you need to keep their sugar up for a little bit as long as so that you can continue to uh, improve their anion gap. Yeah, exactly. You're really worried about the acidosis. Their glucose can be high, you know, in the short term, and that's okay. But it's it's the acidosis that's causing them their symptoms and that you're trying to deal with. And then just one quick tip. So you can differentiate that from HHS, which is uh, hyperosmal or hyperglycemic syndrome. They both present pretty similarly. You know, the patients can be somnolent and vomiting and stuff, but HHS tends to happen in older people, you know, usually people in their 60s and 70s who might have issues with, you know, hydrating themselves and their glucose will be super high, like, you know, up into a thousand versus DK where it'll be a little bit lower, like in the four to 600 range. Um, and they will be type two diabetics. So HHS, type two diabetes, and then DKA, type one diabetes. Very nice, very high yield. So this is a scenario that I had on my night call, Bobby, that I'm going to give to you. You have a patient, he's a gentleman, he's there for some surgery, but in the interim, he has an acute kidney injury and his creatinine starts rising to four, five, six. And as such, a lot of these people with acute kidney injuries, uh, they're starting, they start to be unable to excrete potassium and therefore their potassium starts to rise. So I was called in the middle of the night and uh, was told by the nurse his potassium is now 6.2. What do you want to do? So I'm curious, and this is important for the step exam as well, what are the next steps uh, in treating this hyperkalemia? Okay. So you have a few options. Uh, I think traditionally people say uh, you can give uh, albuterol for like kind of immediate acting, and then as a beta-2 agonist will help move potassium into the cells or you can give uh, glucose with insulin which will also help move the potassium into the cells fantastic yeah so the first thing you can do is basically basically just temporize the situation so you're not going to get the potassium out of their body but you're going to get it out of their blood so that it cannot affect the heart tissue so um, i think the first step would be if you got a patient with a 6.2 potassium on the step two exams, the first step would actually be stabilize their cardiac membrane with some calcium carbonate and get an EKG. Cause that kind of tells you like how severe it is, like what you should do, what uh, urgency you should start working with. 99% um, of the time, nothing's going to show up. Uh, that 1% of the time, if you're scared, you're going to see what on the EKG. You're going to see some peaked T waves. 
Perfect. Yep, peak T waves, and it's really bad. You might even see widening of the QRS. So you have a peak T wave, you have widening of the QRS. All right, get a static EKG. Let's give some calcium carbonate, make sure that the heart's doing okay, and then let's start temporizing. And you mentioned two of the temporizing agents, which includes uh, beta agonists like albuterol and insulin uh, with some sugar. Uh, the third one that we can give is sodium bicarbonate because creating a little bit of alkalosis also shifts potassium into the cells. So those are the three things you can do to temporize. And then there's two ways to get potassium out of the body. What would those be? So you can get it out through the gut with K-exalate, or you can dialyze them and just pull it off. Perfect. Or Lasix, or some type of diuretic. Right. So, right, if it's an emergency, and, and I'll get to that, I have a question stem for emergencies, but basically have them pee it or poop it. Uh, peeing is going to be quicker, so... If I got called for 6.2 potassium, I would do EKG, calcium carb, temporize with insulin, beta agonist if their heart can take it, and uh, sodium bicarb, and then start them on Lasix, um, and then recheck their potassium in an hour and see where it is and adjust accordingly. Um, they have an AKI granted, so the Lasix might not be too helpful, so you might be temporizing for quite some time. If it keeps coming back and it's going higher, 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 and you just cannot temporize for whatever reason, let's say... They're a meth user and they also have rhabdo or they were hit by a truck and they also have rhabdo. And another reason for hyperkalemia, uh, because of the breakdown of those cells, uh, you need to start getting worried that this hyperkalemia will not be controlled by temporizing measures. It's going to be too slow to get them to poop it out and you can't get them to pee it out because they have an AKI. So at that point, uh, it becomes an emergency and therefore you'd be calling nephrology and getting a dialysis initiated promptly. Yeah, sounds good to me. One other thing uh, kind of along the rhabdo pathway is uh, people getting electrocuted. Apparently, it uh, your bones are resistive, so it heats them up and burns your muscles from the inside out, so you should check a potassium in those patients as well. Hmm. As well yeah, as that makes sense. Any type of trauma, electrocution, uh, rhabdo, all these things, even fist clenching when you're getting your blood drawn can cause your uh, potassium to be artificially high. So um, definitely things to remember. The one medication or the two medications that I always forget about but are actually even they even show up on sketchy are heparin and NSAIDs. Those are two medications that can also cause your potassium to be elevated as well. So two things you always want to check out for if someone starts having some hyperkalemia. Cool. I'll drink to that. And finally, one thing for potassium, if someone has hypokalemic Bobby and you just keep them giving potassium and there's nothing improving, what's the next thing you need to start checking? If they're hypokalemic and they're not getting better, I would check a calcium. Close. Or a magnesium. Exactly. Yeah, if someone has hypomagnesemia, uh, they will not improve in their potassium regardless if you give it to them. So you need to make sure the classic thing on the wards you're going to see is if someone's hypokalemic, you give them 40 milliequivalents and they're still at the same number uh, four hours later, uh, you need to check the magnesium because it's likely low and you likely need to replete that as well. I'll drink to that. Cheers. What do you think of your uh, brew, Bo? Man, I really like this. Tropical IPA. I've loved every one of St. Archer's brews so far. And this is another one that's going down on the books. Thank you, St. Archer, for this beautiful brew. How about you? How's your porter? It's definitely smoky. I don't love it. So, a guy comes in. And he has burns on 40% of his body. And he weighs 100 kilograms. 
How much fluid does he need over the next 24 hours? 40% of his body, 100 kilograms. So I'll just tell you what I know because I'm not going to get this answer. I'm not going to get it correct. But uh, when someone has a burn, you want to give fluid. It's something like you want to get 50% of the fluid within the first, what is it, eight hours? And Mm -hmm. the next uh, 50% of the fluid over the next 24 hours. Uh, Let me just start with that and tell me where I'm wrong with that. So you're on the right track. Um, basically what I'm asking you is what is the Parkland formula and it's the formula that you have to use for fluid repletion you know when somebody gets a burn they're losing all their you know skin which is besides doing what skin normally does also prevents fluid losses and so you have a lot of I believe the term is insensible losses where it's just like fluid loss that you can't control and um so you have to be really aggressive about fluid repletion and the kind of gold standard or like, you know, standard of care to make sure that the, the patient's getting enough fluid, like you said, is you give half of the bolus within the first eight hours and then the other half within the next 16. But it is four milliliters and then it's multiplied by their weight in kilograms, excuse me, multiplied by the percentage of body surface area that was burned. Okay. So four times 100 kilograms, so 400 times, you said 40%. Mm-hmm. So I would multiply that by 0.4, or is the actual BSA like 40%? Or Yeah, you would multiply that by 0.4. Fantastic. So that's good. And then the only other thing to keep in mind for that is just the rule of nines. So if, if the question stem doesn't give you like the percentage of body surface area that's burned, uh, you can kind of suss it out based off what they describe. So the rule of nines is that for adults, you know, each arm is 9%. Each leg is 18%. So it's nine on the front, nine on the back, 9% for your head, and then 18% for your front, 18% for your back, and then 1% for your genitals. And then the rule of nines for kids is each arm is 9%. And then their their head ends up being more so it's 18 percent for the head 18 percent for the front torso 18 percent for the back and then the rest for the legs and so just to get back to the volume of lactated ringer or normal saline you give this person if i type four milliliters times 100 kilograms that's 400 and then i multiply that by 0.4 i get 160 what is that 160 telling me i'm not it's not 160 milliliters what is it I'm putting it in MD calc. So it's actually 16 liters. So, okay. So then it, it is, it's not 0.4. It's 40. Here. It's 40. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it would be the four milliliters times the 40%. So that would already get you. Um, and then so multiply that by yeah, 1600. Yeah. Or 100, yeah. That makes more sense. So yeah, you basically you 16 liters. Yeah. yeah. So you give these patients a ton of fluids. Yeah, that's crazy. So that'd be eight liters in the first eight hours and then eight liters over the next 16 hours to, for a total of one day uh, of 16 liters. Yeah. Great. Cool. That's a great question. All right. So I have a 17-year-old male with a history of asthma who presents to the ER with severe shortness of breath. You get a blood gas, and his pH comes back at 7.49. So you're like, okay, that's fine. He's doing okay. He's short of breath, but he's not incredibly acidotic. 
you wait about 30 minutes. Uh, he's looking a little bit more tired. And you get another blood gas. His pH is now 7.38. What is your next best step in management? He needs to be intubated immediately. Perfect. Yep. And why do you say that? So he is going into impending respiratory failure. Um, asthmatics who are having trouble breathing will kind of compensate for a while. And then, you know, their acid-based status will not look as bad as they look clinically. And then once that, you know, pH starts dropping, then you know that they're, you know, they're getting exhausted from, you know, trying to compensate for their breathing apparatus not working properly. So you, they're going to go into respiratory failure, you know, sooner rather than later. Right, exactly. So you're 100% spot on. Just to summarize what you said, this person comes in and they are having an asthma attack and they're compensating and they're breathing quickly. Uh, but as this person tires out, they become more and more acidotic and it's a respiratory acidosis. Their PCO2 would be greater than 40. And because of that, one of the many indications uh, for intubation is the inability to ventilate. So the inability to ventilate uh, is a result uh, and a function of the CO2 in the blood. So uh, this would be one of those indications and you would need to intubate this person emergently. Exactly. Other reasons for respiratory acidosis um, include airway obstruction, acute lung disease, opiates, narcotics. Let's say someone overdoses on opiates and then um, isn't able to breathe or spontaneously breathe and now they're retaining a bunch of CO2 or in this case, the weakening of the respiratory muscles. Yep. I believe is COPD is another cause too, right? Oh yeah, it's airway obstruction. So just like obstructive right. airway disease for sure. Nice. <sighs> so you have a, a guy who comes in and he he's peeing a lot. So you get a urinalysis and it has a low specific gravity, but like everything else is fine. What's going on? I'm sorry, he's peeing a lot or he's not peeing a lot? He's peeing a lot, yeah. But he drinks like a normal amount of water. I'll give you a hint. One of his family members has sickle cell disease. Okay. Just to summarize, you have a gentleman that's peeing a lot. Mm -hmm. He drinks a normal amount of water, but his gravity of his urine which makes me think that it's concentrated is high his Correct? specific gravity is low oh you're overthinking all right i don't know the answer i i just subliminally am thinking that this guy has sickle cell trait and it's causing him to have some increased break there's a reason he's paying more and it's due to him having sickle cell trait am yeah. i wrong you did it good job but why i don't know why i just like i remember hearing something about these people but i don't remember why yeah so he has sickle cell trait and one of the most common so generally people with sickle cell are more or less asymptomatic but uh one of the most common side effects is actually something called hyposinuria i believe i don't know how to actually pronounce it. i've never heard it said out loud i've just read it but basically it's the inability of the kidneys to effectively concentrate mm -hmm. urine and it's due yes. to the sickle cell trait you know under normal circumstances they're not going to sickle but in very acidic or very you know kind of harsh conditions uh such as the you know tips of the medullas in the you know 
in the kidneys it's it's a harsh enough of an environment that they actually will sickle there and that can actually lead to the destruction of the uh you know partial destruction of the glomerular you know filtration system loop of henley type stuff and so they lose the ability to concentrate their urine very nice i forgot about that but remember that i was tested on that previously so that's mm. fantastic so bobby i have a 68 year old female history of hepatitis and ckd who presents with right upper quadrant abdominal pain they ct scan her and they find liver cirrhosis two days later her creatinine levels have doubled what is the likely cause and what could have prevented this outcome it sounds like the patient is having hepatorenal syndrome so so when i first read this question i was like oh yeah it's hepatorenal uh, but they're getting at something else that's it's kind of an unfair question but i'll just repeat it real quick you have a person come in hepatitis and ckd they get a ct scan two days later the oh all right bumps <laughs> what is all the right. cause and what could have prevented it <laughs> we bump in so they needed fluids ahead of time because it's actually an acute kidney injury from the ct scan which i assume must have had contrast yep exactly so the patient had contrast induced nephropathy they would have benefited from saline hydration before some people say you can give them knack or bicarb but hydration is probably the answer everything else is probably controversial and not really needed nice and then my last question about the kidneys for you is a 19 year old guy history of recurrent kidney stones now presents to you with acute left flank pain his father also had kidney stones a urinary cyanide nitroprusside test is Bro. positive <laughs> <laughs> i would be worried about working in a hospital that still does a urinary cyanide nitroprusside test but I would be even more worried for my patient having a cystinuria. Exactly. So this patient has cystinuria, probably so rare in real life, but so <laughs> commonly tested in yeah. the boards. It's one of those. So it's just a disease. It involves defective trans epithelial transport of cysteine and all these other dibasic amino acids in the kidney and intestines. Um, but if you see a young person with kidney stones immediately you should already start thinking genetics his dad has it so even more so genetics and then you see um if you see like hexagonal crystals or a picture of anything mm -hmm. have hexagonal crystals immediately start thinking cystinuria yeah i forget what the treatment is i think you try and don't you try and alkalinize the urine yeah so it's uh hydration and alkalization of the urine with citrate typically or acetazolamide and then long term, they need to do like modifications of their dietary, kind of like reduce their cysteine reduce salt, intake, reduce protein, um, especially methionine. So we talked about respiratory acidosis in that patient with asthma. We also have respiratory alkalosis, which is just as important. So in any acid-base problem, always look at the pH. If the pH is less than seven point four, they're acidotic. If it's greater than seven point four, they're alkalotic. That's clear. That's something we've learned since. M1. Correction does not adjust over the line, meaning if someone is pH of 7.2, they don't have a metabolic alkalosis and then overcorrected acidotically and now have a lower pH. That's not how it works. So if they're less than 7.4, they have a primary acidotic issue. They might have some, uh, you know, adjustments. Uh, they might be compensating 
but they are primarily acidotic. And we talked about respiratory acidosis, and then we have metabolic acidosis. Uh, and there's two ways uh, that we learn them. We learn anion gap, and we learn non-anion gap. Remember, anion gap is sodium minus chloride minus bicarb. Anything that come to mind, Bobby, when you have a high anion gap? Let's just list them real quick. I think about mud piles. Perfect. So methanol, methanol uremia, diarrhea. Diabetic ketoacidosis. Right. Diabetic ketoacidosis, like I said. <laughs> uh, propylene glycol. Uh, yep. Or peraldehyde. Right. Of course. Peraldehyde. How could I forget? <laughs> Aldehyde. Iron tablets. Or right. Isoniazid. Isoniazid. L. Lactic. And then E's ethylene glycol. And yep ethylene glycol and then s for salicylates perfect mud piles methanol uremia dka paraldehyde iron tablets and lactic acid ethylene glycol ethanol salicylates so you see any of those you think mud piles normal anion gap acidosis are just your classic like diarrhea uh and then renal tubular acidosis and then hyperchloremia bobby what's the number one reason someone is hyperchloremic and gets a non-anion gap acidosis in the hospital drinking too much pool water Kind of just a trick question. It's actually us just giving them so much normal saline, right? That they just get a non-ion gap acidosis. Yeah, I heard one one liter of normal saline has like eight to ten bags of, of chips worth of uh, chloride in it. Oh, really? I never heard that. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> Dude, you said that like <laughs> that, that was a throwback ago. to the sodium. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was like, he just said this. Does he have memory <laughs> issues? <laughs> uh, okay, fantastic. So we discussed mud piles and then non-anion gap acidosis, which includes the sodium, the diarrhea, the renal tubular acidosis, and then we have alkalotic conditions. Can you tell me what causes respiratory alkalosis? So hyperventilation, there's a, a little tricky, tricky question one that likes to show up, and that would be uh, aspirin overdose. Right, very nice. So for the listener, aspirin can cause a mixed picture. So when you initiate uh, aspirin ingestion, you're actually going to have respiratory alkalosis due to increased ventilation. But as the aspirin breaks down and becomes its product salicylic acid, you'll get a metabolic acidosis. So then you'll have a mixed picture. These patients can present with a totally normal pH, but ultimately uh, have an initial respiratory alkalosis and a subsequent metabolic acidosis very well done bobby thank you and then for the final point a metabolic alkalosis it's kind of tough you could have antacid use you could get it from vomiting because when you're vomiting you're in theory vomiting out hydrochloric acid and if you remember in the gastric tissue if you're making acid into the stomach it's actually shooting bicarb into the blood because that causes a metabolic alkalosis. So that's why vomiting causes a metabolic alkalosis. And then also diuretic use can lead to metabolic alkalosis. So diuretics, vomiting, antacids. It's it's probably more rare than other other uh, acid-based disorders, but metabolic alkalosis is still something yeah. you need to think about. Isn't uh, hyperaldosteronism like the other one that shows up sometimes? I think that can cause it too. Yeah, it is. Because you can and kind of I, think of it as the opposite of like a type 4 RTA. Uh, so aldosterone typically normally causes sodium to come into the cells or into the blood. And potassium and protons 
uh, to go out into the urine. So now all of a sudden you have hyperaldosteronism. Uh, you're having more sodium come into the blood and you're having more pota uh, potassium and hydrogen or protons leave. So all of a sudden you'll become alkalotic as well. So that's a great catch. All right, Bobby, I have one more question for you. Hit me. You have a 37-year-old homeless guy found unconscious on a park bench. You wake him up and you go, hey, man, what's going on? He goes, oh, my muscles really hurt. He pees and it's really dark. What's the likely cause of this finding? What's the next best step? So he's probably got rhabdo and his pee is dark because of the myoglobinuria. I would check a CK and start giving him fluids. Perfect. And just kind of a throwback. What electrolyte are you worried about? You are worried about potassium primarily. Fantastic. Perfect, right? Because the blood cells are getting destroyed and there's a lot of potassium intracellularly. So all of a sudden someone can have a hyper-K with rhabdo and needs to be treated aggressively. All right, Bobby, how was your drink today? What would you rate it on a scale from 0 to 10? I'm going to give it a, a 6. It all was right. okay. And that was the creep show, right? Yeah. How would you describe the taste? It tastes like I ate charcoal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the beer advocate score for Creep Show is an 88. Very good. Does that surprise you? No. I think it's probably very good at what it's trying to do. I'm just not a fan of what it's trying to do. Right. I'm reading a review right now for it. It says... Uh, I got a six-pack. It poured an opaque dark with thin tan head. The scent had a faint chocolate and smoke note. The taste was nicely balanced. Chocolate, roast, and smoke flavors. The mouthfeel was lighter with good carbonation. Solid beer. By Warped Wing Brewing Company. Very nice. How was your uh, St. Archer? Really enjoyed it. It was the tropical IPA from St. Archer. It was uh, better than uh, the Mexican lager. Uh, it's eluding me with the other St. Archer I had, but that one was really good as well. Uh, so this Tropical IPA, I would definitely drink again. I'd probably give it an 8 out of 10. It was really good. Well, I'm glad you liked it. Is there a beer advocate for it? There is. 87. Not quite as good as my beer. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, I can I can totally see why I got uh, good remarks. Let's see what they say about it. Pours golden with a white head that is fizzy but holds up to a lasting thin cover. A bit of lacing sticks. It hits medium bodied. Pretty juicy. Smooth. Very nice. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, that is it for today's episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. Hope you guys learned something. This is the start of 2021. Bobby and I have a lot of things planned, multiple episodes here as podcasts. We also have multiple things cooking in regards to video content. We want to bring another dimension with images and practice questions. Uh, we have multiple tests uh, coming up on our website. Uh, we will have a bingo set uh, that you can follow up with as well. And so we've got a lot of things cooking for you this year. This is going to be a great year. We're going to expand expand what we're doing and, and bring you guys a lot of value for your step studies and for your medical school journey in general anything else to add bobby call me chef bobby because we cook there you go until next time guys later